and then every time the most dreading part was coming back, looking at a city from afar, and I'm just thinking, oh man, back to real life. <laughs> That's when I started to realize, um,、uh, maybe I like the life out there, out in the mountains. That was Monique Song, known on social media as Overland Lady, and this is the Guy GPS Off-Road Podcast. I'm Wade, your host. What happens when you follow society's rules? Your culture's norms and your parents' expectations to the letter. You succeed and you take your place in the urban corporate world, but there's a void in your life—a need for something else. Monique takes us through her personal journey into overlanding, defying stereotypes and redefining her personal expectations. It's a journey that almost ended when, well, let's not get ahead of the story. If you're living out your overland story, then you're going to need to find a campsite. Guy GPS has your back. Campgrounds are prominently displayed on Gaia Topo, and now many of the campgrounds show the layout of individual campsites and amenities like water, showers, and restrooms. If you like camping away from the crowds, check out Gaia GPS's private and public lands layer to find your dream dispersed campsite off the beaten path. I know when I'm on the hunt for a perfect campsite, I check in on Gaia GPS's satellite imagery maps, cell phone coverage, precipitation forecasts, historical wildfires, and smoke forecasts. To get the most information I can about the places I'm planning to go, you can get all these maps and more too with a Guide GPS Premium membership. If you're not already a Guide GPS subscriber, you're in luck because podcast listeners get 40% off an annual premium subscription. Just go to www.guidegps.com/offroadpodcast. That's just $24 for all the map layers you could ever need on your overland adventures. Now. Back to our episode with Overland Lady Monique Song and her inspiring journey into overlanding. Monique, it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How you doing? Good, good. How are you, Wade? Hey, I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The first thing that I remember noticing you was in 2020. We were in the midst of the COVID lockdown. <laughs> And Expedition Overland decided to host a film festival,、mm -hmm. and you entered a what I consider to be just a really great video、uh, entitled "City Girl." Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I saw the Overlander Film Fest thing coming out,、um, I did have a story to tell. So I thought, oh, why don't I just try enter that and see how it goes? Made a very short film. It's less than five minutes. Um, basically, I just went through a brief story about how I started. I guess you can call overlanding.、Mm, very brief pass of my upbringing, and went to Australia. Eventually, come back.、Uh, wanted to travel my home country, China, and then COVID hit just as I landed. So unfortunately, I will have to return to Canada.、Um, so that's sort of a story from.、Um, City girl、um, named it as such. Originally, I kind of had a long name of like my Overland story or blah blah blah, and then eventually just shortened it as City Girl because kind of short and sweet of what I came from, and now this. Well, like I say, it was about five minutes long, and it was awarded、uh, the best short film in the festival. And of course, I mean Clay Croft is probably one of the best film producers there is in the Overland world. So、uh, that was,、mm -hmm. uh, I think, a, a really good honor. But your film was very fitting for that. I thought it was、uh, very inspirational and、uh, thought provoking. So let's go a little bit into that background. Tell us about you. <laughs> 
So I was born and raised in Beijing, the capital city of China, a very, very big city, tall buildings everywhere, and moved to Canada at 16. So I'm still quite fluent in Mandarin. It's starting to get worse because I don't really use it as much, technically. And uh, moved to Canada, high school, university, went through all that stuff. Um, for anyone that have Chinese friends or if you are Asian, you're probably familiar with the typical parent's expectation of going to university, get a job, office job preferably, or doctor, accountant, those sort of things, and live a good life in that way. Um, so sort of, yeah, I went through that route, listen to the parents, go to university, get a white collar job, work in downtown financial district, and I did not really like it. That's how sort of the City Girl uh, video started. So do you remember the very first time that you heard about overlanding or you were exposed to it? I actually have a friend been using overland as his uh, Instagram handle. At that time, I just didn't know what it means. Uh, quite frankly, I was an ESL English as second language as well. So a lot of the word, I didn't know what it mean. I really looked into it and still couldn't quite understand what it means. It was eventually until after I came back from Australia, I figured, oh, I think that was what overlanding means, especially when uh, Overland Journal nailed a definition of overlanding which is mm -hmm. um, prolonged remote travel, vehicle-based, self-sufficient travel, often, uh, I'm, I'm, paraphrase, I'm paraphrasing here, um, often travel for weeks, months, or even years, crossing continent or country boundary to places that have culture different than your hometown. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when I realized, oh, I guess Australia could be one. And if entering Canada is one, this is a big one then. Yeah. So you had a white Jeep for a short period of time before you went to Australia, correct? Yes. That was kind of your first uh, foray into being off pavement and out. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Jeep. <laughs> so I guess I was, again, back into the background city girl, still even moving to Canada, started to get interested into cars when you're at around the age that you can legally drive. And um, eventually at one point I got tired of all the potholes. Our, our road system is pretty bad. <laughs> and I just wanted a vehicle that I can drive with no, I don't know what word we can use, just don't care and drive right. through everything. And especially in the winter, we might have some snow. So rear wheel drive can get a little tricky at times. I wasn't even planning to get it. I didn't plan it very well. I just had a thought, asked a friend if they have any referral. They referred me to it, walked into dealerships. It was a zero down, eight or seven year finance. So I took the Jeep home without paying a dime. It felt like a gift. It was only until later on when you get that bi-monthly bill. Mm -hmm. yeah. Things you do when you're young. <laughs> so... How long uh, did you play around with the Jeep? Oh, I had it since end of 2015. Um, only started off-roading until maybe a year and a half later. Started mm -hmm. to sort of get agitated with working in downtown and the city life and all the people and all that stuff and started to go out. We call it off-roading, I guess. Mm -hmm into the mountains in Vancouver or PMW have a lot of nice mountain trails. And then every time the most dreading part was coming back 
looking at a city from afar and I'm just thinking, oh man, back to real life. <laughs> That's when I started to realize, um, maybe I like the life out there, out in the mountain without so much, you know, should and shouldn't. Yeah, I think all, all of us kind of go through that uh, withdrawal when we have to come back into the, <laughs> the cities and stuff after having been out in peaceful places. Uh, and of course, you're in BC and you have mm-hmm. some beautiful mountains up there. It's amazing places to go. Oh, we have so many uh, nice trails and I'm surprised so many people don't know about it and maybe only the few very highly advertised um, provincial parks. Other than that, a lot of the city people really don't go out explore much. It opened mm-hmm. up a huge door to me. It's like a whole different world that I just start to know about. Well, it opened that door and you took a big step through that door. And away you go to Australia. So tell me about that. Australia, the decision to go there was actually, we have a lot of Australian in Vancouver, especially on the ski hills. Mm -hmm. During those winter time, it's basically all Australian on walking holiday visa. So I looked into what that is and realized, oh, we can do the reverse. It's basically for... People below a certain age, 34 now, I think, um, to uh, explore the world, try out some different countries and travel with the ability to work, to earn some money to support your travel. Mm -hmm. Sort of see the world before you settle down in a way. And at the time, I didn't really have a career or wasn't happy with the career I was in and didn't have a so-called stable family in terms of you know, boyfriend or fiance in that case. Right. So I thought, oh, this is for people like me. I should go. There are a couple countries that you can choose from that are in this program. Mm-hmm. Australia, I thought it would be easier because they speak English. Yeah. Uh, little did I know, Australian English is not, it can be a little <laughs> difficult to understand at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you take off to Australia. What do you drive when you're over there? So I landed there, started looking at rent car sales, looking for a Land Cruiser. I had a couple criteria of a vehicle there because I do want to travel mainly through uh, land. It needs to be, well, since I was exposed to four-wheel drive, I still want to have a vehicle mm-hmm. with four-wheel drive capability that's also big enough for me to carry all my life belonging living down there and somewhat reliable since I am, you know, will be living on a road. I don't want to have breakdown all the time. And Land Cruiser, especially Honda series, we didn't get that here in Canada. We had the Lexus, but not right. the Land Cruiser. So I thought maybe, oh, that would be a good opportunity. So when I looked into it, I specifically had a thought if by the end of the term, I want to keep it. It will need to be 15 years old to be able to import to Canada. I believe for U.S. is 25 years old. So I looked for one that will hit 15 years old by the time I return. And here comes the 2005 Toyota Land Cruiser 100 series. <laughs> A very nice looking uh, vehicle too. So uh, you have good taste in, in picking overland vehicles, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> now, were you alone on this trip through Australia? Not all. So... Here's the backstory. <laughs> Before I applied for working holiday visa, I actually applied it with my best friend, Julia. We met in school in university. Mm-hmm. She was sort of one year after me. So when I already took off, when I went there, she was still in school. 
But after we applied, I guess I would say I was sort of seeing this one guy. And I just briefly told him, oh, I'm planning to go to Australia. If you're interested, it's an open invite. And he applied for it the same day. They approve it pretty fast too. So we essentially, he came a couple of days later than when I arrived. We stayed together from Sydney to Melbourne about two months. And eventually the relationship didn't really hold, hold on. And we slip, split off uh, to, we're still mainly in the Melbourne area, but mm-hmm. live like two and a half hours away. Um, a lot of the travel we still did together. So we did have solo pot on each end and together. So what adventures in Australia kind of stand out in your memory? Ooh, Red Center definitely is one. It's something I've never seen. So vast and wide open. Wooloroo, I know it's a huge tourist spot. Looking on the photo, it doesn't seem all that impressive, but it was only until you really stand there underneath, you see how big it is. It really shocks you in a way. And that's why I always recommend people to really go there. Video photos, they can only say so much. They give you, I guess, the motivation to go, but that's not enough by just looking at the photos. And I guess what stand out to me the most was driving on the beach, either Fraser Island or Western Australia, because we don't have that in Canada. Right, yeah. Well, you did have one uh, <laughs> kind of scary experience on the beach. Okay, since beach driving was new, I didn't have the idea of watching for tide. And that was also something new. When we were in Western Australia on a beach, it was full of dried seaweed. They dry out to white color. Mm -hmm. Originally, I thought seaweeds are, oh, they're green, they're wet. But when they dry out, it's like almost like dry grass, very flammable. The tide was coming up. We got pushed closer and closer to the bank and have to drive on the seaweed. Eventually got high centered at one pile. The heat of the exhaust light up the seaweed underneath right away. It started to have smoke coming underneath the car. That was, I guess, the closest I might have lost my car in Australia. After about 30 minutes digging around and fire extinguishing, max tracks, eventually we got ourselves out. But that was really <laughs> quite a close call. Seaweed? Mm-mm. Dried yeah. seaweed, I mean, stay away from them. I would have never thought about that, that, you know, I mean, getting stuck in the sand, yes. But the fact that you could, you know, potentially light the seaweed on fire, you know, under your vehicle. You know, if you'd have burned that Land Cruiser down, we couldn't have had you on the podcast because our first episode was Casey Kaiser burning his Jeep. And we don't want to be the podcast about everybody burning their vehicles <laughs> up, so... <laughs> Gaia Off-Road Burning Vehicle Podcast. <laughs> so, so we're glad that didn't happen. Uh, that's great. So you were in Australia for about a year. Is that correct? It's exactly a year from day oh, okay. to day. Okay. So was that, limit, was that the limit of the visa? It was one year for your first approval. You will have to do 90 days, three months farm work or rural construction work Mm -hmm. to be able to qualify extend to the second year i did not do that (laughs) so (laughs) i will have to leave i did work in uh, melbourne but it did not qualify for the you know farm work picking fruits usually what people do yeah 
No, <laughs> we'll not I end up traveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was the purpose of going over there. So you said whenever COVID hit that you were actually uh, back in China to visit your birthplace. And then Canada put out a message. If you're coming home, you better come home now, I guess. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. To put it. <laughs> yes. So when I came back, it was... Well, while in Australia, I invited my parents to come visit me in a way mm -hmm. to show them how my life is down there and to take them travel a bit. I would say my dad has been working way too hard his whole life. And even at this time, even my mom said that he should take time off and retire just to enjoy life. He is at a place that he is capable of, but maybe a workaholic per se. But I just want to show them uh, a type of lifestyle that I wish that they can take on. So I invited them over. I brought them to Uluru, the rest center. We went off-roading as well a little bit. And during this time on a row, we were chatting and they presented me with this idea to explore more of China because there are a huge area of China, a huge part of China that is quite underexplored the western part very beautiful mm -hmm. not so populated not like where i grew up from beijing it's so crowded all the time so that was the original plan when i landed the same day they announced that covid 19 was transmittable between human and mm. very quickly the whole country just shut down what your parents think whenever they were in australia uh seeing you traveling around and having such a good time they were quite impressed i would say maybe changed how they think about this sort of lifestyle too as i said from the very beginning they had this expectation of going to work work in corporate and you have to be always either working towards it and end goal a career if you didn't have that then just keep on studying that's mm -hmm. why i applied for an mba as well it's like either you are working or as a girl, you're being a mom or you keep on study. That's mm -hmm. sort of my dad's uh, expectation. And once he saw how I could manage from planning to execution and to coming back, I would say he was quite impressed. And on the way, there are a lot of RVs or four drives, retired couple, older couples usually mm -hmm. just traveling yeah. by themselves. So the whole way I've been telling them, this is what you guys should be doing. And I guess he might have seen that and took some in as well. So you're back in uh, BC, and I assume you were able to import your land cruiser. Yes. I sent the cruisers to uh, the port. We can continue on where we left off just in Canada now. Is that when you got pretty serious about doing uh, YouTube videos of your uh, expeditions, your trips? I wouldn't say very serious about YouTube. I get this question asked sometimes, what made you decide to be a YouTuber? Mm -hmm. I never really have a, I guess, one night deep thought, oh, I want to be a YouTuber. It's more so somehow it just became a thing and people start to like it. I've been journaling since grade nine and <laughs> taking, yeah, taking photos all the time and just recording memories. At first, I just had sort of a uh, photography portfolio type of website. And eventually I feel like photos alone aren't really enough. I wanted to talk about what happened during the day of shooting or what's behind this thing that I'm shooting, the story behind. So I started blogging briefly and eventually going into four drive and off-roading photos don't really 
tell how the vehicle maneuvered through the rocks. So I started filming some videos, but at first it was almost like a music video. I will find a music and just sync the clips to the beats and mm -hmm. slowly start to talk. Feel took me a long time to feel comfortable talking in front of a camera, and somehow it caught on, I guess, and then. People start to call. Oh, she's a YouTuber. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, your videos are actually extremely good. I mean, obviously, City Girl was, you know, fantastic. I mean, it it won a pretty prestigious award. Do you have professional videography training, or is this just something that you've learned up pretty much on your own? Um, no, it's pretty much on my own. YouTube is a great place to learn things. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> giving back to YouTube, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you just Google everything and either there will be someone blogging about it already or there's a YouTube video talking about it. So you have your Land Cruiser back in Canada. Can you take us on a short verbal tour of your home on wheels? <laughs> sure. All right. Picture a blue-gray Toyota Land Cruiser 100 series with an ARB front bumper. And brush bar, they call them brush bar, but it's like a fender hoop connected to side steps. Mm -hmm. They're not really sliders, but I slide through rocks anyways. <laughs> with a coastal off-road rear bumper with a spare tire swing out. In the back, I had a Titan drawers. Those are probably the most affordable drawers you can get in Australia. Almost everybody has it. comes down mm -hmm. to less than 400 per set. And I took out the second row seat built a sleeping platform to line up the same height with those drawers. So I sleep on the passenger side rear of the vehicle and on the driver's side, which is the right side of the, the rear, um, I had an ARB fridge. Underneath the vehicle, there's a two inch lift from Terrain Tamer with the heavy duty shocks. Two inch, two or two and a half inch, I believe is the most you can go with 100 series. I IFS because they use torsion bar. It's a little bit of a, a hot thing for, for clearance, but mm -hmm. I have skip plates all around. In the back, there's also a long ranger extended fuel tank because Lancus do burn a lot of petrol. And on the top, I have a Rhino Rack. This was later on in Canada, a Rhino Rack Pioneer platform with a 270 degree awning. Sometimes I close all the sides up that creates a huge indoor space in a way because in a Land Cruiser or any SUV four-wheel drive per se, you have very mm -hmm. limited indoor space. So your travel in Canada, were you home basing in Vancouver and just going out for short trips? Yes, because at that time we had the COVID restriction. You can't really go anywhere far. So mm -hmm. it's everything, I guess, timing really lined out too. This is also when overlanding starts to grow very, very hard where everybody wants to get out. And I started traveling with a couple local groups to go to trips to the island or wherever we can. And eventually when the restriction opened up, you were able to travel to Yukon or farther places, then your option kind of expanded a little more. So you were traveling sometimes in groups and sometimes alone, correct? Yes. I would say mostly in groups at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And eventually, it's just really difficult to find people having the same time off and being able to go out on the same uh, day or they might want to go different places. And eventually, I tried doing it myself and 
it's totally doable. And I actually feel it's much more freeing that there's no more asking around, hey, can you incorporate this? Can you do that? You make your own plan and you can change accordingly without consulting anyone. It's really freeing if you got all the essential skills inquired. So that's some of the good parts about uh, solo travel. And I really enjoy solo travel myself, obviously. Probably well over half of my trips are, are solo. What are some of the downsides to solo travel? Downside. I guess if you go off-roading very extremely, try not to go solo. <laughs> um, I tend to go way more conservative conservative when I mm -hmm. am traveling solo, mainly just big FSRs or sometimes, yes, some smaller trails, but definitely not so much rock climbing as I would with a group. Sure, I do have enough equipment to get myself out of almost every situation except one, which we might touch on later, but mm -hmm. it, it is easier to have someone else pull you out, winch you out. And also when you get stuck yourself, it's a lot of time wasted just digging around, trying to get to your destination if you have one. Mm -hmm. um, and you never know if you may just break something in the process. And that just gives you a, a little bit more problem in that sense. Do you, Let's see. Now, you do travel with a uh, satellite communication device, right? Mm -hmm. That is actually the reason of how I can stay out so long without driving anyone crazy because when you think about it when you go out solo travel sure you're all relaxed and having fun but people who care about you they are probably not sitting very well they want to know especially if you're a single child <laughs> unfortunately parents tend to be very worried and being able to inform them i am safe every night and send out a location just in case they want to know, or if anything happened, they know where you are. And mm -hmm. also, while on the road, I actually used it to communicate with other traveler. Sometimes we meet up for a night or two on the mm -hmm. way. That would be helpful as well. Yeah, I, I highly recommend people carrying something like a Zolio or an InReach or what, whatever they choose. Having that connectivity in the places that we travel that are so remote is uh, really critical. Mm -hmm. So you're out by yourself. And I'm sure that you have to attract a little bit of attention because very seldom in my travels, okay, never in my travels, really? uh, have I come across a really nice land cruiser, solo <laughs> female, is Chinese, has a French first name. People have got to be asking you questions. What are some of the oddball questions that you get whenever you run into folks out on the trail? <laughs> That's a cool conclusion. I actually saw one of the comments people said, a Chinese girl with a French name driving an Australian land cruiser traveling in Canada. <laughs> you touched on a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yes, I don't think there's too much odd question. Most of them will ask why, maybe, like why mm -hmm. you are here solo. Why not with anyone, with with either they might ask if you have boyfriend i've had very few that asked that yeah i don't really think there's any really odd question per se according to my video a lot of people were just wondering where i'm from if they haven't seen city girl because mm -hmm. i look asian i have a mixed accent from everywhere and then they just wonder what what is up 
what is she? <laughs> anyway, that's sort of what I got the most um, in terms of weird response. I was actually, unfortunately, from my fellow Chinese, especially people back home, um, mm-hmm. not really widely accepted. They still deem it as dangerous or not something a girl should do. Some of my aunt, when they see me out there alone, they'll be telling me, why are you out there alone? So dangerous. Go home. Obviously, it's a whole different culture. So that's, mm-hmm. it's, I guess, a little downside or sad things to say is um, not really being accepted back home. But obviously, after talking to them for a while, and once they start to understand it, I can, you can sort of see that knob shift that they start to get very intrigued of, oh, this is a whole different things that I never thought about. Exactly. In preparing for this episode, I reached out to some of my friends, female friends who are overlanders or backpackers, all adventurous folks, and had them watch some of your videos. And I had two universal responses from them. The first one was, you have to interview her. She is so interesting. We want to hear that story, which I sort of anticipated. The second one, (laughs) I didn't anticipate. And I can't believe I'm actually going to ask this question, but it's their question, not mine. So every guy out there is thinking, dude, don't do it. Don't do it. Their question was, how do you keep your makeup perfect on an overland trip? (laughs) I do get that quite a lot, believe it or not. And, um, I joke about it too when people there are people commenting oh yeah in the bush having five pounds of makeup and I would reply excuse me it's 10 pounds <laughs> and I call my lashes windy day special because they do flap with strong wind <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's I guess an extension of my past life as a CD girl the part of me that I didn't lose And also in a way to keep myself uh, not to slide in a way. Mm. As an overlander, you tend to, over time, become bums. (laughs) Become a bum. You don't, you rarely shower. Think about it. You don't shave, no grooming. And really, over time, you start to look really floppy, almost like a homeless. Well, I guess in a way. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that would describe me coming back from just about every trip. But, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> we, we still take ourselves out there and we all have these little things about ourselves that we're going to take with us on our trip. You know, and uh, yeah. so I can fully under understand that. And still and every guy's out there going, dude, what's wrong with you? You ask her about her makeup. Guys. Well, <laughs> I, I guess it's also one thing that uh, because I had makeup on, and every night I'll have to take it off for my skin mm-hmm. in a way. So keep myself accountable in terms of hygiene. I know mm-hmm. for, say, weekend camping trip, some people may just let it slide and maybe not even brush their teeth. Sure, for a weekend, no problem. Go have fun. But if you're on a road actually overlanding for several days, yeah, try to keep as much comfort as possible as if you would at home or whatever lifestyle you're, you're used to. Mm-hmm. A little goes a long way. That keeps you on the road way more comfortable. You won't be missing home that much, thinking right. I'm missing my shower, I'm missing a proper sink, stuff like that. So just to try to keep your life back similar to your normal routine, um, it goes a long way. And 
if for those girls, I guess, that really do wonder, I have an ARB wash bag that has a hook. So I hooked it on my second row seat. It's a built-in mirror that you can look at yourself. So I keep all of my toiletry and makeup brushes, all the stuff inside. It's actually really easy if you obviously know how to do a makeup. That came back from my city time. And um, mm-hmm. if I really do want to style my hair, I actually don't really do it that much. I do keep a hair straightener and I can run it on my portable power station. <laughs> well, you have pretty much all the comforts of home, so that's Here's not all the bad. tips, girls. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. So in the late summer of 2021, you set out on a quest to reach the Arctic Circle via the Dempster Highway, just kind of moving slowly north, mostly solo on that trip. What were some of the highlights uh, of that trip for you? Highlights? There are so many. Uh, I would say spotted my CV axle leaking while I was still quite weight down south, but already far from home and was able to quickly source out NCV from a local shop in Vancouver and end up taking a detour to Edmonton area, had a shop there to deal with it. They are actually quite an expert in older land cruisers. Mm-hmm. So took took that way back out to continue the trip in a way to experience that on the road, to have a certain level of mechanical knowledge, even if you're not fixing it, being able to spot it before anything bad happens is quite important. And then try to source out the help that you need to get it fixed before you're really dumped out in the wild. Mm-hmm. And the real, the actual highlight, I would say, maybe just reaching the Arctic Circle. Wasn't able to reach Arctic Ocean because Northwest Territory is not open to travel, right. which means Taktoyaktak and Inuvik are, are not accessible if you're not a um, commercial truck. Mm-hmm. So only Arctic Circle. In terms of being solo, I was actually been I've been talking about this trip planning with a few of my friends, but in the end, nobody really had time, didn't take time off or didn't want, didn't just didn't have that firm decision. But then I thought I'm still going to go. And the idea of Arctic or the northernmost part, northern part I can go to kind of come from while traveling in Australia, they have the northernmost tip, southernmost tip, all the boundaries, east, mm. west tips, and going through a big circle. So going to the boundary kind of, it gave me an idea of that's kind of cool to see, you know, how far this piece of land extend to. And at the time, going south wasn't really an option yet. Mm. So going north just made sense. In watching the videos, that little village of Atlan seemed really nice. Atlan is a very interesting place. I didn't even know it existed until looking on the map and seeing. So after you turn into Yukon, going into Whitehorse, turning back down south again, you enter BC again. There's a little town called Atlan that is connected, is a piece of BC, but there's no road access through BC. You will have to access it by going through Yukon. Mm-hmm. And entering there, there is the whole town has no reception, but people are very, very nice. Somehow, it made me think that whether having no reception made them that way, because people actually talk to each other instead of gluing the head into their phone. 
Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, uh, you ran into this uh, blue Ram with a four wheel camper on the back of it. And that guy was going to come back into the story a little bit later. Uh, but I thought that was really cool. When you meet overlanders and you're fairly far out, uh, we all stop and say hi to each other. If you cro- if you happen to cross paths with the same person in the city, you probably would just pass them by. But we always mm-hmm. know that there's a rig out there then, and what they're doing, and we want to stop and talk to them a little bit. Yeah, well, Andrew with the Blue Ram, actually, I've been, we've been talking before I left, I would say. Mm -hmm. He has been on the road since June 2021 and been in Yukon since August. And other than him, there was also two other girls that were going up north solo as well that I was originally going to meet up with. But they ended up finishing their trip way before I got to where they are. So I didn't end up seeing meeting them. But Andrew was still up there. I remember him saying that he was planning to come back down because it started to get cold, almost like animal migration in a way, <laughs> go to wherever warm. Mm-hmm. But somehow he was still up there. And I ran into him on one of the most remote road, uh, North Connaught Road, north of Ross River driving past each other. We just stayed on the side of the road, chatted for almost two hours in the cold. He was still in his shorts. I was shocked. (laughs) Somehow. I'm in my snow pants already. (laughs) But yeah, that was my first encounter to actually meet up with him. And um, eventually he was able to bring me back as I got into an accident. Yeah, we're going to get to that. So we'll just leave that as a little tease for right now. You didn't go to the Arctic Circle, though, without taking your friend Julia. So you picked her up and she was going to come along with you, right? Yes. So I picked her up from Whitehorse Airport and we drove from there up north. The two of you made it to the Arctic Circle. And the video of that, of your celebration, I I loved it. I could tell that, you know, you had set a goal for yourself. Uh, You made it work. You got there. And that's a wonderful feeling to be able to to do that. Did you mean the uh, <laughs> cinnamon buns? Somebody I made cinnamon. <laughs> you made cinnamon buns at the Arctic Circle. Yes. Now that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about, hmm, we should do something while here. Something normally you wouldn't do. Sure, take a picture. Everybody does that. Mm. And then I just learned that you can make cinnamon rolls in air fryer. Also, by the way, I cook on an air fryer. Mm-hmm. Goes back to try to make your trip as comfortable as you were at home. So I just quickly whipped up some air fried cinnamon bun while in Arctic Circle. That was our dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? I mean, you're there. May as well, right? It was so. the time to yeah. <laughs> watch the sunset. It was beautiful. This is getting into the fall. The weather's changing very rapidly. You turn around and start heading south. What were the road conditions like then? That was end of September. Even the locals said this year we got winter or snow coming way earlier than before. Usually snow doesn't hit until after October. Mm -hmm. We just had a couple snowstorms a few days before we got onto Dempster Highway and the whole highway was covered in snow except the first maybe 50k in. And this was 
possibly what they say too, one of the most challenging time to drive to Dempster because in the summer it's dirt road, a right. lot of potholes. And there's a saying that in the deep of winter, say around Christmas, where up north temperature gets to negative 40 and the road freezes to solid ground, it actually becomes slightly easier to drive. So the time I was there, it was covered in snow, but not cold enough to freeze everything into solid ground. Mm -hmm. So you're basically skiing the whole 400 something clicks. And then you had an incident with the Land Cruiser. I don't know if we should make it more lighthearted. If so, then I joined the Rollover Club. (laughs) (laughs) So... The way I saw it, you were driving down the road and all of a sudden the Land Cruiser starts sliding and people need to understand, I mean, this road is a little bit of a berm. So it's built up above the, sometimes above the surrounding terrain. And so there's a slope off the side, right? If really dive into the reason or, or how I rode off the road, there are many, but I would say mostly is I got distracted Mm-hmm. And came out of an S curve that was at a time. At the time, I was talking to Julia, mm-hmm. and I was slightly to the left, which was supposedly oncoming traffic, but obviously there was no one there. And she screamed. I panicked and jerked a wheel, and Ooh. vehicle lost control. Mm-hmm. That's how it happened. And the rear kicked out was still biting the side of the road for a while and eventually popped those passenger side two tire and we start to roll down the hill. Another reason of how that could happen was I actually learned from the tow truck guy, Sean. They've been driving Dempster their whole life, right? Seen all sorts of conditions, have so just endless experience that they could share. And he told me never, they never ever air down, which is mm. quite surprising to most of the off-roader I would say yeah and I guess to me the reason I add down was the potholes at the very beginning there was no snow at the first 50k makes your ride way more comfortable to Mm -hmm. float through it and we were always told when you're on snow air down when you off-road air down but Sean said do not air down because essentially you are driving on marshmallow mm-hmm. and it, when you need braking or anything it doesn't respond as quickly or as well and mm-hmm. that's probably why I popped the tires so easily as well so your Land Cruiser basically went off the side you did a complete roll the way I saw it and you wound up back up on your tires correct? I have no idea how many rounds we rode um, because my front windshield shattered in the first impact with the ground, with Mm -hmm. the snow ground, and um, vision was basically blurry. You couldn't really see much, but I would say probably uh, almost four or five rounds, but luckily landed tire side down and Mm -hmm. the vehicle was still running. I even made an attempt to run up the hill. And then realize we there's no way I can run up that hill and through the trees as well. Yeah. So I jump out of the window because the door was jammed. 
to try to look around and see what's going on. And that's when I saw, yeah, we popped two tires and there's no way we could drive out. And that's the idea of Zoliol came back to me. I quickly asked, where's my Zoliol? And activated the SOS function. That was my first time ever to really have to use the SOS mm-hmm. other than chatting through the app. And But quickly, I was able to wave down a passing Kenworth truck and the truckie L picked us up with our nightly belonging, drove us to Sean, the the, the tow truck guy. He has the biggest tow truck in Dawson City. <laughs> and we really got so lucky that he was in town at the time he was cooking dinner for his sons and came to the shop to meet us. L made a joke saying, from here on, I do delivery. I guess that's a pun. <laughs> I do delivery. Now is your job. Uh, and he ha- still had to continue on to go to Whitehorse. They drive so long for a day. Yeah. And Sean drove us to the hotel. I was able to convince him to take us along on the second day when recovering the vehicle because I do want to see and pick up some stuff from the snow. And it was almost like a yacht sale. <laughs> a lot of things were everywhere. And that's why at first I really didn't want to leave the vehicle out in the wild. In BC, you have so many horror stories of people had a breakdown on some quite well-known FSRs and maybe taking some time to gather the parts. When they come back trying to fix it, the car was burnt down. Mm-hmm. Or it was all smashed up or broken into, taking all of the things. Very horrible things happen if you leave your car in the wild. And that's why I really didn't want to leave it. But Al told me, nobody touches your thing up here. Right. So the second day when I came back, really, everything was in one piece. Window was out. All of my belongings were were just arm reach. You can take whatever you want, everything. Mm -hmm. But everything was in there. There are footsteps in snow because people have been coming and checking to see if the people in there were okay. Right. This was... I guess one thing Sean said that if he were to save someone from an accident, he would put up a tape afterwards just to tell all the passing vehicle that the people are taken care of. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Because them stopping also is a risk for them as well. Yeah. But yeah, nothing was lost. There was uh, some animal tracks too, maybe smelled the food coming to the vehicle <laughs> and went away. But yeah, it was such a nice experience it was quite mind-blowing in a way to to see how everything come together and how nice the people are up there because in a way they really do rely on each other to survive when harsh harsher environment comes and there was one time well when it rolled when we were on the way back in Al's truck my first reaction, some of the first thoughts were, how am I going to get us back? Because Julia still had her flight from Whitehorse back home. And me as, I guess, somewhat seasoned traveler, I can deal with a lot of 
the adversity or hiccups, but I want to make sure that she is taken care of. Mm -hmm. So that's when I had a thought, oh, let's see where Andrew's at, if he's still in Yukon, because I might need a ride back to at least Whitehorse. And he was in Nahini Range, which was another quite remote track out of Watson Lake area, a long drive to where I am. But his first, his reaction was just, I'm coming up north right now. He took a night in Whitehorse. And in that night, he had a thought, hey, I have a Ram 3500 diesel. I can tow. Why don't I just rent a U-Haul trailer and tow your car back? I kept saying maybe not because that means I am ending your trip too. He was also a Vancouver loco. Mm. So he came up with, I don't know, excuses or just really insisting and helping that he needed to go back as well. And uh, the second day he grabbed the trailer and came up. So we went to have dinner in a pizza place. It was funny that the whole room was looking at us as we walked in. I'm not sure if it has anything to do with two Chinese girls with one white guy or <laughs> people just recognized me. Mm -hmm. Because when one table left, one guy stopped at our table and looked at me, said, I'm sorry about your car, but I'm glad that you are okay. I looked at him and paused for a long time. I couldn't make sense of who this person is or have I met you or any of those sorts. And then he probably read that I was confused. He added, oh, I drive to Dempster and I saw your car. So I'm just glad you're okay. Mm. People in yeah. those towns are very friendly and very nice, I guess. Those sort of news, it travels very fast too. So I, I thanked him with a black eye, obviously. That was sort of the visi only visible injury we had, luckily. Yeah, two things I took away from, from that was, one, kudos to Land Cruiser, to Toyota for the Land Cruiser. Because like you said, you roll that vehicle and neither one of you were seriously injured. You had what you, you you had a bump, a uh, little bit of a black eye. Uh, was Julia injured at all? She had a bruise on her arm. Obviously, the second day we start to feel your neck pain, back pain, all those rollover and concussion sort of symptoms later on. Yeah. But visible injury, that was it. That was all about it. Al was making the fun of it. So no injury other than a black eye. <laughs> so I looked like I got in a fight. But yeah. nah. Well, that was that's, only that's thing. pretty good to come out of an accident, and that's the, the worst visible I injury have, that you've got. So, yeah. Exactly. I have to thank Lancuza or Toyota to create such a tough vehicle and perhaps really the uh, Rhino Rack Pioneer platform on top as well. It kept the roof from caving in further. Otherwise, tumbling through so many rounds, especially breaking trees through the trees and all that, the roof would have caved in way more and mm -hmm. essentially crushing our heads or pinching our legs, stuff like that. But the whole inside was still quite kept in shape. Everyone, Elle, Sean, everyone passing, they were quite impressed at how the vehicle was still sitting, like as if nothing happened if you don't look closely mm -hmm. after whatever had really gone through rolling so many rounds. So I joked about how Rhino Rack is an Australian brand. They call themselves Tested in the Toughest Outback Australia. And I joke that now Tested in the Arctic, too. <laughs> By me, I didn't yeah. really mean to, but now you know. <laughs> now you know. Um, 
And probably I think the second takeaway from that was you you touched on was the people, you know, how nice people are when you get out into these more remote areas, because almost immediately you had the trucker, Al, who picked mm-hmm. you up and took you into Dawson. Uh, Sean, you know, with the world's largest tow truck. Uh, comes out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a huge, I saw the video that that's a huge tow truck. It's uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, brings you back to Dawson. Andrew, uh, Andrew, eventually through Andrew, you got Julia back to Whitehorse, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then his idea to trailer your land cruiser all the way back to Vancouver. Uh, one of the things I learned, we, talked about earlier the first episode that we had with Casey Kaiser and his Jeep burning down. Uh, my takeaway from that was the insurance issues after an accident. And so the aftermath of the accident for you was probably, there were several things going on. First was the insurance on the vehicle. And you have a little bit different system there in Canada than we do here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I won't say Canada, it's just British Columbia, you you only have this one insurance company to go to. Everybody insure their vehicle with ICBC mm-hmm. monopoly. But yeah. Um, yeah, it took them quite a long time to even assign an estimator for this case and deemed it a total loss. But not only that, it's titled status as not repairable so not even a salvage you cannot rebuild it and luckily they were able to somehow work in the process to make me keep the vehicle as parts because Mm -hmm. of how highly customized it is but eventually i just at one point really want to get the vehicle back during that time it was sitting in icbc lot we had the atmospheric river in vancouver huge huge rainstorm so i at that time i just just want to bring it home whatever you say let me take it back. At least I can put a top on it. Yeah. <laughs> Cover it up. So, so we do get attached to our vehicles. I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of time in that, uh, in that 100 series. I guess for me, a little special case is perhaps from my upbringing, I am a single child. So I tend to get attached to vehicles easily in a way that they are the only one always with you, going mm-hmm. everywhere, taking you everywhere, protecting you, and especially for traveling remote long time like this. It's your companion. And I name my vehicles as well. So they've, they're a person to me in a way. And they carry a lot of the memories of the things that we've done together, all the photos, each tell a story of what happened. You could say I have a bit of nostalgic tumor. Sometimes it haunts you. So definitely sad to see him go. And in a way, after the rollover, it sort of gave me a whole new perspective as seeing things. Almost came out as a um, spiritual experience in a way. One mm-hmm. viewer actually wrote to me in an email. It shocks me of, at how detailed they were watching my videos and try to sense, I guess, what's going on with me. He said, perhaps this is the closure from my past experience unfolding, both sad and beautiful, allowing you to take a new path. Much like the caterpillar must liquefy before becoming a new form, the butterflies, so too, might you have to release your vehicle. Memories, papal, fear, shame, guilt. So you may become you. 
it shocks me in a way that he seems like read through my videos, especially from back in Australia time. This Lancuso carried a lot of memory from back then with my ex-partner, you could say. Mm-hmm. And seeing the vehicle gone, it sort of signify as a past closure, uh, past experiencing, past experience unfolding, coming to a closure so I can start fresh, completely fresh. Which, in a way, was good and bad, that it gave me a release of not seeing the vehicle leaving as such a sad thing, but also gave me a confusion at how should I process this? How do I feel combining with coming out of such a tragic tragic accident almost with no visible injury and everyone was saying i am so glad you're okay so it seems like i should just be glad and that's what i've been telling myself for the most part and especially it happened in so remote of an area i just went straight into problem solving mode trying to figure out the logistic side of things and how to get myself back didn't really have time to process how i felt after this and I've been telling the story of, yeah, the rollover, the process. I am glad I am safe. I am fine. And sure, it presented me an opportunity to grow from the past experience. And now I can finally, I guess, get a vehicle that can correct a lot of the tiny things that bugs me with the Lancusa. So you shouldn't feel sad. You should just feel glad. And that kind of ran me into a survival guilt stage where I didn't know how to feel and almost feel bad that I survived that the vehicle didn't survive but I did and I caused all of this and all that stuff in a way I did feel sad about what I've lost but because of no visible impact it almost felt like I wasn't entitled to feel anything otherwise just a little I guess things that after a big accident a lot of people don't really address this sort of incident in terms of how it can damage you emotionally or mentally but from this if you process it nicely it can become a huge growing process now looking at what's next again after going through all the confusion with emotions I'm starting to feel more at ease with talking about the accident again and then really come to uh, a comfortable stage to say, I do have an opportunity to get something that might fit this task better. Sure, a Lancusa is really good, but throughout my travel, especially long remote travel, there are times where the little things just bugs me. Fuel consumption being one every day or other day, I'll need to put in hundreds or maybe two hundred dollars of gas of mm. petrol <laughs> i am running at around 22 liter per 100k that's roughly 10 miles per gallon which is really bad and plus in order to increase the range added that long range of fuel tank if you fill the mall is very heavy you can feel it and not enough indoor space that's the one thing if you travel long enough, being outside enough, especially going to places that are cold enough, it makes you miss indoor space or even, say, a van a mm-hmm. lot. And now I can really start fresh on a platform that might fit this sort of activity better. 
Have you chosen that new vehicle? <laughs> I have actually put down a reservation, put my name down and a deposit on a hybrid Tundra, the new 2022 Tundra. Mm-hmm. Really promising specs. It's not leaf spring anymore, basically sharing the same platform as a Land Cruiser 300, which we don't get in North America. So it's only fair that we do get a little bit of something, right? <laughs> yes. And after seeing Andrew set up, he has a four-wheel camper in the back of his Ram truck. You just open the door, walk in as if you're living in a very tiny home. And we're going to be uh, very interested to see how you what you eventually decide on as far as a camper and how you build all that out. So do you have any advice for someone who wants to be a solo traveler? Yes, I do get this sometimes even email of people asking, how do I start traveling solo? I want to solo overland and how do I start? I tend to respond back by asking why do you want to do it and why do you want to do it alone? Usually, if we are strictly talking overlanding, the people that are doing it long-term alone, they usually have a very strong drive, a strong reason that why they're going on a road alone. Through the way back with Andrew, I listened to his story. Um... There definitely is a lot of the personal side of things that made him where it where he is. And also the two other girls that I originally was going to meet up with each had a story. I wouldn't say is your first option when people first come to going off going down um, to the to the mountains and to explore and to be alone because it is true that Joy is best shared with someone or with a group. And perhaps that's why I started posting up my videos at first just to share with my family to tell them what's going on and then slowly start to share with more audience, especially when I am alone, I tend to film more because I had no one to talk to. So I talked to the camera, which became all the viewers and you guys. So eventually starting to have this vibe as I am bringing my viewers along and talking to them as I go with every day. So in a way, I am still sharing my trips. It's just physically I am out there alone. But if you really do want to start doing it alone, I would say get all the essential skills acquired. Start if you're really off-road new to the whole off-road scene to begin with, do not do it solo. Start with a group. Learn from the people with experience. At least, you know, get the air down, air up, all that essential skills, how to set up a fire, all those things done. And then slowly, when you go on to some trips, pretend you are alone and do everything yourself. Air down your own tire. Track your own map using Gaia. And maybe even plan your route before going. Ask the team lead or whoever planned it where we're going and go on to Gaia, look at the route and see what you might encounter, some of the splits, track your own road, arrive at campsite, set up your own fire, cook for yourself and set up your tent or whatever sleeping arrangement you have. 
next morning, similar idea, pack down or whatnot and go out, air up. And once you go through one round, doing everything yourself, expect, um, accept there's other people around. And once you get the hot skills done, you can start to go out alone. Obviously, why I mentioned Gaia, not because we're on Gaia or heard podcast, but if you want to go out alone, you need to know where to go. So you need to be able to plan your route first. And that's why starting with a group and you can track some road, maybe even just try out the same road that you did with that group just by yourself this time. And then slowly you can plan your own route and then go out. And once you gain that confidence of the heart skill that you can manage your vehicle and you can start to go on maybe some of the places that you've never been to and then slowly expand it longer and longer. And before you know it, you are solo overlanding. <laughs> Just enjoy the process. Looking back over your experience, has overlanding changed your life, uh, who you are inside, and if so, how? Oof. I would say traveling, overlanding, changed me almost 180, a total different person. As the short film City Girl said, from very sheltered and I guess maybe even princessy, you could say I'm not even that princessy, but to now being able to do a lot of things on my own and especially handling a lot of the harsh things and the heavy work myself, it boost up a lot of your confidence and make you recognize how capable you are and motivate you to try to achieve more in a way and instead of being content with status quo makes you a better person for sure. How can our listeners uh, follow you? Oh, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Overland Lady. That's fairly simple. I do have a blog, a website. It's just my full name, MoniqueSon.com. Monique, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Your story is uh, quite unique, and it's been an honor to have this opportunity to sit down with you. Oh, thank you, Wade. It's been such an honor to be able to have a chat with you and sharing all of our stories. Thank you. It's been fun. Wow. Monique is really impressive. And somehow, I think this is just the beginning of her journey. It's a big world out there. And if you're going to take it on the way Monique has, you're going to need a big, powerful map to help you find your way. Don't forget that our podcast listeners get a sweet 40% off a Guide GPS premium subscription. Just go to www.guidegps.com slash offroadpodcast to unlock all the best maps and features that Guide GPS has to offer. This is Wade. See you next time.